I'm TJ Walsh, and you're listening to the Bold Creatives Collective podcast. Take a front row seat to hear conversations with successful musicians, producers, actors, visual artists, designers, directors, marketers, and more, and learn about their perspectives and approach to leadership, creativity, innovation, and growth. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody. I'm really excited to be back with you all and uh, bring along with me Michael Kalmbach from Wilmington, Delaware. Um, And this is really special to me because, as many of you know, um, in my other life, um, I am a therapist, um, a psychotherapist. And my passion, uh, which is why I started Bull Creatives Collective um, and my coaching side of things, is to uh, bring people um, through their journey of life by using um, artistic and creative mediums. And Michael is the founding director of the Creative Vision Factory in uh, Wilmington, um, where it's a community-led nonprofit organization um, where they seek to uh, help people along in their journey um, through uh, the use of art and other creative means uh, to better their lives and their mental and behavioral health. And so I'm really excited to uh, talk to Michael about that and also about uh, what he sees as being um, important for all of us as creative people um, to, to do in order to nurture our, uh, our mental health, our behavioral health, and also hear a little bit about his story um, and how he did and does that. Hey, Michael, how are you? I'm doing well, TJ. How are you? Awesome. It's so good to meet you. I've been following you along um, on Facebook. One of the things that um, many people know about me is that I'm kind of creepy in that I like identify people that are doing really awesome things in the world. Um, and I like to um, learn just by kind of lurking in the background what they're up to. And you're one of those people. Um, we have some like associations um, because... Um, I, I am kind of like tangentially associated with the Wilmington art scene um, through some of my friends, but I'm much more connected to Philly. So I've known about your work for a little while, but it's really cool to actually get to talk with you mm-hmm. and uh, and learn a little bit more like from from the man instead of his Facebook profile and and his uh, his talks online. So thanks for thanks for being willing to give up some of your night. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I um. You know, likewise, kind of like notice that our Venn diagram of contacts over overlaps, and you know, unfortunately, Wilmington needs to be more of a, more of a part of the Philadelphia art community. It really does. <clears throat> yeah, but we have a structural uh, deficit there in that our city government continues to uh, think that it's okay to run our first our art loop on first Friday. <laughs> oh, well, right. It's been a crusade of mine for a while to try to get them to move it to second Friday. Right. I mean, wouldn't that be just, you know, logical? Would be. Um, <laughs> and so the great thing about Wilmington and Delaware is it just a, it's just a matter of time. You just have to wait and your best friend will eventually be mayor and then you'll be able to just do whatever you want to do. So yeah. until then, though, uh, some friends of mine are organizing a alternative art loop. Awesome. OK. We're calling the event Last is First. Last is first. That's awesome. I love it. We're going to be highlighting uh, alternative venues, uh, bringing bringing art loop like events into districts that historically have not had art events. That's awesome. And this past year too, we uh, uh, 
group of friends of mine, we successfully advocated and got the Division of the Arts to um, to accept hip hop as a funding category within our funding. Get out. That is really cool. And so uh, we're planning to also have, uh, you know, highlighting local hip hop artists as a part of our last dispersed after parties. So that's awesome. There's going to be after parties, too, in this whole thing. Oh, yeah. That's all. See, I, I love, you know, my wife is from Wilmington. Um, she's from North Wilmington. And um, ever since I've been, you know, hanging around her, I've like just like really have like realized how like closely related everybody is in Wilmington. Like all of a sudden, like these or in Delaware in general, all these people start talking about these other people. And you're right. I think when you say, if you just wait around long enough, your friend will become mayor or governor and, you know, like you'll, you'll, you'll all of a sudden have their ear, but you've been involved with the state of Delaware and the city of Wilmington in all different kinds of ways for a really long time. Um, And so can you talk to, talk to us a little bit about, you know, your history there and how you, um, came to be the founding director of what is called the creative vision factory um i know you know you got your mfa from delaware in 2008 right and so that is that where it started for you in delaware or you know why don't you talk and i'll stop yeah i would say uh you know that's definitely where it started for me in delaware we uh well i would i would even put it back a little further my wife and i uh we uh we taught together in virginia um, for three years, right after graduating from undergrad, and so okay. in 2003, I graduated from Bloomsburg University. Um, after my my second senior year, uh, my second okay. senior year was due to the fact that my first uh, senior year ended with me at uh, checking checking into uh, White Deer Run in Allenwood um, okay. for rehab okay. for a heroin addiction and. Uh, and so my second senior year was my first year in recovery. Wow. Okay. And so I completed like uh, my sobriety dates April 13th and I, you know, graduated from Bloomsburg, um, got my, um, <clears throat> you know, my first year, like shortly thereafter, uh, right before I graduated. And then right. all uh, my, my wife and I, who was then uh, my girlfriend, uh, we um, we ended up teaching together in Westmoreland County, Virginia. Okay. Uh, called Washington Lee High School. Okay. But what's wild to me is I had I had absolutely like no plan other than maybe possibly like moving to Philadelphia to you know hang out with some other you know friends of mine who live there and. Okay. I had no no plans whatsoever. I I, I knew I wanted to teach. I was thinking about graduate school. And, um, but for me, um, you know, um, I was really, you know, really in love with Rebecca and was going to follow her wherever she, wherever she went. My, my, yeah. my grandfather actually told me like, follow her, you know, to be her page turner, wherever she goes. <laughs> yep. Yep. So she ended up getting this job teaching French at, at Washington Lee high school. And I was working for my father at his campground in Maine that summer. Right. And I ended up, I was able to get a transfer to a campground in Williamsburg, Virginia, that was in the same chain of campgrounds that my grand, my father managed for forever. And um, while I was down there, um, you know, I I got to meet people at, at 
the school that Rebecca was teaching at. And we met this amazing, they had an amazing art teacher there, uh, a man named Michael Faulkner. Okay. And Michael, he is, he was like, he's like a character straight out of a Christopher Guest movie. Okay. He, uh, is a, he and his family are, are owners of a, uh, of a kennel called Wood, Woods Point Kennel that breeds like champion golden retrievers. Okay. And Michael, in addition to teaching art at this very rural Virginia school, was also like rehabbing a historic home in the area. Gotcha. And, um, and, uh, and also like it often judges sporting breeds at the Westminster Dog Show. No, that's awesome. Like getting to meet him, I, yep. I like at like a faculty party. Um, he then, uh, you know, it was probably like in October of that that fall. I'm I'm just getting comfortable working at this new campground and kind of right, right, right. You know, thinking, you know, I really don't have much uh, any plans whatsoever. And here, Michael uh, said to Rebecca, "Hey, nobody knows this yet, but I've been offered a really good job at this Bill Gates." my Angelou charter school in DC. Okay. I'm going to take it. And I'm so, so concerned that they're not going to be able to find an art teacher here. It's a really rural school and right. nowhere. And, and, uh, he said to Rebecca, do you think, do you think Michael would be interested? And she was like, well, you know, his mother's a teacher. You know, I think that, you know, he's maybe got the chops for it. I think he would. Okay. Be. And, um, so I put my materials together and I applied for the job the day that, you know, Michael Faulkner resigned or put in his notice. Notice, right. I then got to shadow this guy in his classroom, basically from like the time period of like Thanksgiving break to Christmas break. And then I took over the classroom. Just rolled right into it. Yeah. And um, what was so cool about that experience is that, you know, for me, the high school art room was always a, like a sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, um, I had a really great teacher when I was in high school, a guy named John Minnick, who uh, he um, he taught my aunts and uncle, and knew our wow. family, and was friends with our family, and wow. I had the luxury of not only having him as a high school art teacher, he was also my junior high art teacher, and then he transitioned to the high school with me, like. It just it just so happened the work. So he just followed you all the way along and all the way through. And uh, you know the the great benefit of Mr. Minnick is that if you were if you had any kind of self direction or if you're a worker, he'd basically just give you the space to work. You know, That's and awesome. he'd always kind of drop in on me with some suggestions, things like right. uh, things like that. But I never I never needed anybody to like get me moving. Right. And um. And so for me, when like years later, you know, uh, when I'm, I find myself in this high school art room with Michael Faulkner, like it was really clear to me that Michael Faulkner was also like a Jedi, you know, much like, you know, John Minnick. Yeah. He just had a touch with kids and mm. it became really clear that his room was a safe space for people. Yep. And uh, for me, you know, um, get, uh, you know, I was thrilled to get this job. Um, Right off the bat, though, I I knew I was gonna try to leverage it for for grad school. You know, yeah, get paid for three years. I I, I was hired on an, an emergency hire, and I got a temporary license from Virginia to teach mm-hmm. three years. You know, sometimes when it's really rough, I kick myself in the ass. Like, th- th- why did I not get that education degree? <laughs> why did right. I not back on that? Right. 
Because your undergrad degree is also is is an art as well, right? It's you a fine are. art degree. Okay. You are, and um, and so, uh, but yeah, it was a real gift to be able to kind of uh, have a crash course in student teaching from a a, a gifted instructor like Michael Faulkner. I mm -hmm. even he even uh, during that break when I was like you know shadowing him, I my first like official substituting duty was covering his room while he was actually judging the Westminster dog show. <laughs> That's so crazy. And so um, I ended up taking over this art room, but it became so clear to me being on the other side of the desk right? that there was something more to the room. You know, it's like right. I, I always wanted to be, you know, I always had a goal to be a really, really serious artist. You know, I never, yeah. I remember, and that goes back to Mr. Minnick as well. I remember you know, being in seventh grade, making something i had this kid right next to me in class uh, clint iller and clint said to clint looked at my drawing he's like michael you you should be an artist <laughs> and, uh, mr minnick was standing behind us and 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 said clint he he already is wow and for me yeah. that was just like okay like i guess that's that's what i i'm gonna that's be what you are it like solidified your identity right there yeah i really you know i really didn't have any other kind of path other than that from that point forward i knew that i wanted to you know pursue the arts and and do that and you know being in that being in the classroom for the first time though i i started direct and you know not only just being in the classroom but also you know just really being a, a year clean and sober and right all of a sudden being in charge of a like five art classes and a black and white photography class and kids. Oh my God, man. They just like threw you in. Yeah. Big time. And I'm not really, uh, you know, that much older than these kids at this point in time. Right. And, right. Uh, I felt like, um, it was just a real trip for me because I felt like really, it, it felt like I, I, I had the opportunity to do it over. It yeah. Was, I was like going back to high school. Yeah. And, you know, what, what would have happened to me and my work if I, you know, I had never had this kind of like sidetrack, in drugs and alcohol is what mm -hmm. it felt like early on. But one of the things that was really cool is that, you know, most of the students, like it, that's where it made me realize that my recovery history and just my time in art rooms just gave me this kind of like superpower that I could like sniff some stuff out. You know, most right. like kids were having some problems, you know, you could trace it back to drugs and alcohol and, and two, just having a kind of an mm -hmm. upbringing where I was around a lot of chaos and, were you okay? Uh, you know, um, you know, my mom, my mom got my mom got clean and sober when I was in second grade. Okay, I was I was in a in the car with her when she had a pretty pretty significant DUI crash that kind of you know got wow. her in her rooms and got her cleaned up. Right. And also too, what's interesting, her story is like a, about a year after that, she ended up getting a job teaching at the school that I was going to. And so I feel like you know education and being a teacher is. Definitely, um, that was the model that I had. Yeah, um, you know, I'm sorry. I, I I'm just like listening, and I, I think you know uh, my story is very different than your story. We all have obviously different stories, but you know this. What I'm hearing about like your experience in the art class, both as a, a, a kid and a student, and and then ultimately a teacher is like so similar to mine in that like I can also name my art teachers from middle school and high school, some of whom are part of this 
Facebook group now that I've created and this whole thing that I'm trying to grow and they're trying to help me along with that. But they, uh, so, so my high school art teacher, um, my college, my undergrad professors, um, at the university of the arts, like I credit these people with in so many ways, saving my life in, multiple multiple times multiple multiple iterations um i didn't have um uh i don't have a history of of substance uh use um in in the way that you do but my thing was in was eating disorder mm-hmm. um and you know the intuitive nature of these of these art educators both at the high school level and the and the undergrad level um for me um they picked up on stuff about me like without while well, I thought I was all like stealth and everything like going under the radar. Mm-hmm. Um, but the power of the art room, um, especially as a, as a kid, as a high school student, um, I'm hearing very similar, like a uh, very similar theme between you and I um, to like coax us out to like, give us a sense of identity mm-hmm. Um that we can hold on to no matter what happens right mm-hmm. in our life. Um, we can always come back to it. And then to be able to like, you're like, you're talking about get into the classroom and start to like do the same thing for, for people on the other side of the desk, which is really amazing. So you were in Virginia then teaching for how long? For three years. And uh, during that during that three years, I you know I was I was starting to position myself for graduate school. Yep. I was thinking about um, you know doing some research for MFA programs, and and that's what for me it felt like you know le- like going back to high school and then reapplying. You know, I ended up going to Bloomsburg University because that's where my you know that's where my father grew up, and I used yeah. to like, like going there like when I would go visit and go to the Bloomsburg Fair. I wasn't uh-huh. doing intense research on like yeah. the department who's there or I yeah. to position myself for schools, even though like, what's funny is like, even though I, I mean, I had great grades in high school, I was like captain of my hockey team. I had all this stuff going for me, but I, I didn't have anybody coaching me along of how to position like myself. What to do. Out. Yeah. Right. And so, um, you know, I felt like I, I really lucked out in that the, the art department at Bloomsburg was incredible. You know, and I had like this really, it's like small scale art department where I had a ton of, you know, just had the entire faculty in my pocket yeah. you know it was, it was it was awesome but um you know i was positioning myself for graduate school in the summer of 2005 i got accepted to the uh virginia commonwealth university's summer studio program okay and all of us that were in that program were all trying to do the same thing we we're trying to like leverage this program to get into vcu right and once we get there uh we then realized that like you know nobody gets into vcu through this program uh, right but it runs eight weeks and uh the head of the painting department at the time uh richard roth who was one of the you know leading faculty members there that you know turned it into the department that it was right you know we had we had richard like it was it was pretty cool to have this kind of access and yeah and he described it to us right off the bat he's like you know this program is kind of turned into like a little mini mfa program and you guys should be ready you know, to uh, apply something I'm running once you get started. It's like, you know, the first month feels like the first year and the second month feels like year two. Like, and every week we would have a guest artist 
come in, do a studio visit, and then we'd have Richard do a studio visit with us, and we'd have somebody from sculpture do a studio visit with us. There's like ten painters and ten sculptors. Okay. Yeah, I'm still friends with a lot of the, a lot of the people I was in that cohort with. Okay. And uh, and then two, the same with a lot of the faculty. I'm still in touch with a lot of them, and it, it was a great experience. And and so I ended up applying to eight programs and got into um, the University of Delaware, University of Cincinnati, and okay. Madison University. At this point, I was really like technical about how I was applying because I only applied to. I think I've been, I got rejected from Hunter College twice. Like right out of undergrad, I only applied to the Hunter MFA program because a guest artist at Bloomsburg was like, you know, you should apply there. Right. And they kicked you out twice. They they declined you twice. Yes. And uh, and then so like some of the top programs obviously didn't get into some of those top programs. Um, but Rebecca and I, when she was first um, going around doing interviews for her teaching position, which ultimately landed her in Virginia. We uh, came by uh, Newark, Delaware, where the University of Delaware is, and yeah. uh, she was. I was driving her to an interview she had at a high school in Maryland. Okay. And the principal there told us to go check out Newark. A lot of teachers live over there, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's what like kind of like planted the seed of Delaware for, for me. And we just kind of fell in love with just how quaint the town looked. Yeah. And when I did start doing some research about their program, I was like, well, hey, like this is like a really well-funded MFA program. And there's, you know, if I get in, it will be a tuition waiver and a stipend. Yeah. It's starting to make sense. Yeah. Like this could, this could work. And, um, you know, when I finally came to get my, uh, to come see the the campus, I I knew as soon as I got here that this was going to be the place. Um, I had just interviewed and and actually like University of Cincinnati actually flew me there as a part of like my acceptance package. And I was part of this like recruitment weekend. Okay. And it was a, it was wild. Like I, I was just like, it just, for me, it was just, it felt so nice to be like chosen and right. treated like really well. I was just like, yeah, I'm going there. Right. Um, right. Oh the, yeah. The whole time I was there though, I was thinking, man, Rebecca is going to hate Cincinnati. Hate him. And your grand and your grandfather said you better not leave her, right? So, yep. right. And so, um, you know, I knew that I knew Delaware would be the better choice, and uh, it, you know, it seemed closer to our family, and uh, you know, it 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 it's really worked out. But you know, a faculty member here, uh, Bob Strait, who started started in our art department in 1980. Okay, he was you know, it's like trips me out because I was born in 1980. <laughs> I was teaching grand. <laughs> And he, uh, he just had such a great touch and he just has such a, he's so kind. And as soon as I like got on this tour with him, I just knew that, Hey, if I get to work with this guy and other faculty and have it fully funded, you know, what could go wrong? Right. Um, So that was the slam dunk to come here. But, um, you know, the whole time here, you know, working on my MFA, um, what was, what was wild is that as much as I, you know, um, was excited to start graduate school. The transition from being a high school art teacher to then being in grad school was, um, well, I loved it. <laughs> I mean, it, it was like, it was just amazing to kind of be in graduate school and just be working in studio, doing all right. the research. But I really missed the energy of like a room where I felt like I had like 120 people to collaborate with. 
right amidst the energy of just like the jokes the cutting up the right you know, right and one of the things that i did uh my just from community to really solitary really quickly big time yeah and it, right. like, i needed that kind of like itch uh you know and that the spring of my first year of graduate school i ended up getting back into a practice where i was uh customizing sneakers and it was based off of like uh, my most popular lesson when i was teaching high school art in virginia I had a, a student in my class, Monte Motley, who would come in every every day with some new shirt that he designed, new sneakers he designed, but he wouldn't do any any work. Nothing else. It was just. Uh -huh. and, uh, and so I, I finally said to him, I was like, you know, Monte, like most of us, we go through these classes and try to figure out what our practice is. You already have it figured out. So how about you like come in and like you just use the art room as like your shop time. You just do whatever you want. Right. And then I'll figure out a way to grade you. And, um, and so I kind of like, just off a whim, like drew a, a, a template of a blank Air Force, Nike Air Force One, and took it to the copy machine, made a bunch of copies, and told him, I was like, you know what, you owe me, you owe me 20 designs, and I'll make up for all your late work. Mm -hmm. What ended up happening is that that somehow got twisted in the school, that if you submit your designs to Mr. K, he'll get Nike to make them for you. And it's just like, <laughs> having like a bunch of kids, not even in my room, submitting designs, Design. copies and doing that kind of thing. And so I, I set about to make a, a series. I, I thought to myself, you know what? I should teach myself how to customize these sneakers. And I'm going to make a whole line of shoes that all violate school dress code. And then I'll like create a lesson out of it. And then huh? all the students will have to like, have some sort of like social critique embedded into their shoe design it has to say something. But as soon as I had a, you know, as soon as I brought in the shoes with the young Jeezy angry snowman face and the different bandana color uh -huh. shoes, uh -huh. I had everybody in my pocket, you know, and it's like the classroom management just kind of like just dissipated because right. everybody was having fun. And I had, right. you know, I right. had, everybody. so when I was in grad school that first year, I ended up, linking up with a group uh, called the Public Allies. It's an AmeriCorps-funded program. Okay. Uh, University of Delaware maintains a really uh, like nationally successful and award-winning program in Wilmington. And Public Allies, uh, you know, high school grads, college grads, um, get placed with a local nonprofit, and you work for that nonprofit Monday through Thursday. And then every Friday, you meet yeah. your fellow cohort, and you go through this leadership development training. And I ended up teaming up with them and told them this idea that I had to like conduct sneaker workshops in the city of Wilmington. Yeah. And they immediately got me hooked up with the school on the East side, got me hooked up with, you know, different people were organizing over there. And yeah. we set up this community workshop every Wednesday and Friday for like a whole spring at Sarah Powell Academy, which is an alternative school on the East side of Wilmington. Right. And what that kind of planted a seed with me that I was like, wow, this was, that was really fast. Like it got me, these people got me in touch with community like that. Yeah. And so um, that kind yeah. of planted a seed when I got out of grad school, I, um, you know, I thought to myself, oh, you know, if worst comes to worst and I have to stay in Delaware, you know, it seems pretty easy to connect with people, you know, like mm -hmm. maybe I'll, I can get involved in yeah. like the nonprofit lane or something. And, and in the UDMFA program, uh, 
they encourage you to take a course outside of your discipline, like during your third semester. Okay. And I ended up uh, taking a course in uh, nonprofit leadership and governance in what is now called the Biden School. You know, so it was okay. a public policy school back then. Right. Now it's the Biden School. So right. I, uh, I took that coursework and, you know, it just, when I was, when I left the MFA program, my wife and I, we had our, we had our son a week after my thesis show. I had a, what I didn't even realize at the time, but back, you know, in February of that year, I, I landed an interview at Boston University at the College Art Association uh, conference. And I thought, hey, like, all, everything's lining up. Like, everybody told me my whole life that it was going to be impossible to be a professor. Here I am. I'm, I'm getting interviewed. You're right getting now. interviewed. Right. Yeah, it's happening. Thinking it's happening. And then um, I go down to Dallas and bomb the interview. <laughs> and I start having symptoms for, for the first time of what ended up turning into my ulcerative colitis diagnosis. Okay. And, and I had, you know, my thesis show, my son right. was born. And then the very next week, I started working at the Delaware College of Art and Design. I got a job in the admissions office. Okay. Like in the time period from that, from that interview with Boston University to the thesis show was also the like the market crash of 2008, and all those jobs like evaporated. Yeah, yeah, in thin air. Felt like I was just lucky to even be near a school. Although, like working in the admissions office at the Delaware College of Art and Design, I used to. We could tell people it felt like it felt like you know it felt like I'm a baker, and then I had to work the register at the bakery, and it, it was really uh it was really frustrating for me. I'm sure it was. It right. was also what was really great is that it got me back into high school art rooms. Yep. And I think my prior experience as a teacher, I was able to like get into some rooms very easily. Yep. And the whole time I kind of went about that kind of recruitment job, I knew that, hey, you know, like, it's not going to be forever, but I am such a champion, always have been, always will be, to, like, encourage people to pursue their dreams, you know, yeah. pursue what they want to pursue. Right. So, like, you know, preach the gospel of, there's a thousand ways to get there. Yeah. You know? and, and so I would go into these classrooms and yeah. Instead of giving a like hardcore like sales pitch for DCAD, I would give a presentation on how to like present your portfolio, and then I would talk about our program. But like, you know, when it, it was always a soft sell, right? So right. That, was, that was a cool job, but it, it like really introduced me to Wilmington. It introduced me to downtown. The whole time I was at, at the University of Delaware, I would drive over Wilmington. You know, on my way to Philly or New York. Like, right. You didn't stop here. You didn't stay here. It's like drive over country. It's like flyover country. It's drive over country, right? Big time. And so, <clears throat> I, had a, I had a friend of mine who was an undergrad at the time who lived in Wilmington who used to hold house shows, and I did a I did a show at his place in this uh, neighborhood called Cool Spring. Okay. And like now, a, a, a big cluster of my friends live there. There's all kinds of cool stuff going on there. But I remember having a show at his place and thinking to myself, you know what, like. If we stay here, like I could like be the contemporary art scene like overnight. Yeah, you could. I mean, you could create it. And like that's like, you know, what I'm hearing your story, like everything is always like pulling you back to this thing, right? Like, 
you know, like community empowerment, like encouraging um, individuals to pursue art and them and their lives in whatever way they want or or can, um, you know, and then landing, you know, in your your friends' house shows in Cool Springs, right? And then having that realization that there's so much that I can like, I can do here. Mm -hmm right is just like come on like stop trying to do all these other things and like just like give it up and say you're say you're a wilmington person right well and then too it's like the the thing that was really cool i mean the delaware college of art and design is in this like art deco building that used to be like our power company right and the building the building itself is gorgeous and our uh, founding president jim leckie i always uh oh, i forget the uh the Hotel Budapest. That uh -huh. movie. I always yeah. like, always think of like that movie makes me think of Decad so much because Jim Leckie is this like the guy had like such style and grace and was so smooth and he reminded me of like the the maitre d or the host of, the, of in that film. Yeah, Install yeah. H or something like that. <laughs> but like the place is also kind of like falling apart. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's like we got this old Art Deco building in Wilmington. It's like it can be really hard to convince people to like spend two years of school in Wilmington and then like right. other places. And right. So, but the thing is, is like that job. Just like I, I really fell in love with the the architecture of the building and just being in a city, even though it was a small city and it's little. At least, like I was scratching that itch of being in a town and. And it was just so much fun just walking up and down the streets and, and checking out new buildings. And the other the other great thing about an entry level admissions job is that I could it, I would probably be able to get everything done, you know, by lunch. Right. You know, and maybe I'll take a long lunch. Maybe I'll get lost. Maybe right. I'll walk around someplace. And uh, I started organizing my friends and created this little uh, kind of cooperative called New Wilmington Art Association. And we were putting on shows and vacant properties throughout downtown. And, you know, I, I just took this one class from what's now the Biden school. And at least I like, sounded like I knew what I was talking about. Like sure. I was term for like nonprofit leadership. And exactly, exactly. We, um, we had a lot of fun organizing shows in those spaces, but what that, what organizing those shows did was really kind of like put me on like a, a little contemporary art scene. Uh, being affiliated with the college was really easy to open up a lot of doors. Mm -hmm. And I got to meet this really cool guy. His name, his name's Chris White. He was the, um, the executive director of community legal aid society. And uh, he uh, was the uh, board president of this uh, community development corporation called Shipley village CDC. And okay. they were getting in, they were in the process of demoing a building and turning it into an artist live workspace. And when Jim Leckie, our president of DCAD, was getting ready to retire, he um, he had me take his seat on this board. Okay. And told me that, like, you know, years ago when he came here to become president, he joined this board. And finally, all these years later, they're getting ready to, like, advance this project, all the work that you've been doing in the community. You know, this building really needs that kind of connection and plug and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Jim left i took jim's seat and things just couldn't happen fast enough like as soon as i joined that board like you know you know the construction of this project started started right off the bat that's awesome i had, I had no um 
kind of appreciation for the fact that the board was formed in 1998 when I graduated from high school. You know, it like took a long time to get to this point. Yeah. For me, it just seemed like everything was just happening real quick. And so to be a part of this, like, you know, organizing around this artist live workspace, um, it was just, it was a lot of fun. And we were already kind of like thinking about the second, third and fourth building. And three days before the building opened, uh, Chris White was tragically killed in a hit and run car accident. Oh my God. Being a planning meeting from our building and walking up Shipley street to his office at 10th and Shipley a community service building. And so, um, you know, the, the great thing about working with Chris is that he did 90% of the work. And the bad thing is that he did 90% of the work right. on this project. I was the guy who was doing like 10% of the art stuff mm-hmm. and then found myself in short order, the new board chair of wow. what is now called the Chris white community development corporation. Wow. One of our first tenants, uh, was a guy named Alan Conover. And, you know, our artist preference policy was very lax, you know, like artists, we had to define it very broadly. And Alan got in there. Uh, he was a DJ. Okay. Uh, his day job was the director of the, of Delaware's like very first peer run drop-in center. Okay. Wow. It was right down the street from, Shipley Lofts and Chris White Gallery, you know, so we're on Shipley Street, uh, there's the 700 block of Sh- uh, Shipley Street, then on the 600 block, there's Planned Parenthood, and then there was the Rick Van Story Resource Center, a parking lot, and then right across the street is Delaware College of Art and Design. And so through this guy living in our building, I got to learn about this kind of like mental health drop-in space. And being in relationship with him, you know, if you're in mm-hmm. relationship with me, really quickly, you'll find out that I don't drink. And then you'll find out why I don't drink. Right. And then we'll kind of go from there. Well, when I tell Alan my story, when he figures out my story, he was just like, he was like, well, do you, do you know that the state of Delaware just got sued by the Department of Justice for warehousing people in the state hospital? Wow. And as a part of this lawsuit and settlement agreement, they're looking to establish more peer-run centers and there's actually an idea out there to have a peer-run center organized around the arts. And, he, and Alan Conover said to me, he was like, they have no idea what they're doing. What they're doing. <laughs> I'm like, they put this re- they put this RFP together because Kevin Ann Huckshorn, who is the uh, director of the Division of Substance Abuse and Mental Health, who was brought in specifically to oversee this very complicated settlement agreement, one of her, uh, her nurses that she brought with her to train up all the peers in Delaware is this woman named Gail Bluebird, who okay. historically in, in the survivor movement is like a right. big arts figure. And yep. she's like responsible for bringing in like art spaces into a lot of hospital settings. Uh, but Gail, uh, well, she'll refer to herself often as Bluebird. Also uh, is like very engaged with the arts as a site of advocacy and protest. Mm-hmm. And she was one of the people that like sat in on governor Brown's office in California way back in the day. And, right. And um, what was so cool was as I started doing the research around this, I was just so excited because it just, it became so clear that this was just like up my, this was my wheelhouse. Yeah. And a good yeah. friend of mine and mentor in Wilmington um, 
Barry Schlecker, who's this older, older, older guy. He used to run a networking company. He, um, he runs our uh, Brandywine Festival of the Arts. He used to yep. run the film festival and, and he's just the funniest guy ever. You know, it's like if, if I meet somebody who's very irreverent and makes me laugh all the time, I will be like attached to them forever. Uh-huh. Um, and so Barry was kind of like my like Wilmington Sherpa because he would, I would have breakfast with him and he's a natural networker. And he'd always tell me like who I need to call, who I need to talk to. And when I started talking to him about this opportunity, I knew that he had a really extensive outsider art collection. And he got a lot of his stuff by supporting a lot of these progressive studios and programs. And he's right. a fan of creative growth in Oakland. Right. And so when I started, uh, you know, doing the research for a kind of drop-in behavioral health arts center and this request for proposals that I was looking at was really generic. Um, I knew that I would be able to create kind of like the behavioral health version of creative growth. And that this huge legacy of working with, you know, people on the developmental disability spectrum, right? Room to widen this out, you know, and right. create a really inclusive environment. And, and so my proposal I put together, you know, um, I went in and, you know, they immediately hired me. Wow. So, you know, like, yeah, you got it. And here it is. And so early on, uh, they initially had us co-locate with the Rick Van Story Research Source Center. And so I spent the first months um, shadowing Alan in his program. And I knew right off the bat that we wouldn't be able to co-locate. But uh, <laughs> you know, I was working on that plan. I, I accepted the contract like in July. And then we opened up, we officially opened our doors in December okay. of 2011. So th this is our 10, anniversary, 10 year anniversary. Right. And uh, this December will be 10 years that our doors have been open. But right now it's like the 10, 10 year anniversary of me being under contract with the state for this. Wow. And so wow. early on, I mean, once we, once we kind of, you know, Alan ended up finding a different program and then got a different fiscal agent and moved and I ended mm -hmm. up staying in the building. Okay. And so for me, it was really, um, it was a real trip. You know, I, I feel like I, um, you know, I come from a long line of of um, kind of like hardworking Irish Irishmen who are like constantly under the grip of fear that they will lose their jobs. Yeah, and yeah, right here with you. <laughs> anxiety is anxiety is the you know is the medium that we all live in, and uh, yeah. our family and and um, you know, for me, like what what really like the double-edged sword of chris white's death and what so many people didn't know about is that the week before chris and i were at a in a meeting with the united way where we were just getting turned down for a large grant that would have hired me as the liaison for shipley lofts and i would have like managed the gallery and i would mm -hmm. the art mm -hmm. guy there and when we didn't get the funding you know chris kind of like chris was a guy that really like world really wore the world with a loose fitting shirt, really at ease almost mm -hmm. all the time. But he was also a real tenacious fighter. Mm -hmm. He said to me, he's like, Michael, don't sweat it. He was like, you know, we will get this. We will get this. this is too good of an idea. We will get this funded. Like, don't fucking don't worry, worry about it. Yeah. Next week he's dead. Wow. And, oh my god. And you're probably like, what the hell? Yeah. And um it was 
it really the the thing that was also really hard for me early on is that like I really love this guy and there's so much grief there but then it was also wrapped up in this grief of like my career and the opportunities and you know am I going to be able to like recreate these scenarios and, and then right. we this whole fucking building <laughs> on, yeah yeah and I'm trying to organize a tenant <clears throat> association where I meet Alan Conover and then it was just one of those things where I don't know my, my career has always benefited from being in the right place at the right time from like landing that high school art job meeting sure. Faulkner, you know, working <clears throat> with the, you know, Jim Leckie at DCAD and meeting <clears throat> White. And um, it just seemed like such a trip, you know, years later when I am, I'm literally running a program that Chris, that would have blew Chris White's mind. Yeah. You know, and the big problem that I had when we were organizing for the rent up of Shipley Lofts is that through Chris's work, I started really seeing just how dire housing is. And just like our desperate need for more housing and here, you know, Chris White and his work through community legal aid was a big mm-hmm. advocate and he was a, a, a leading figure in helping like mobile homeowners associations, you know, like keep their property, right. all this kind of stuff. And um, so, you know, it just, it, it does feel like a kind of a kismet thing that I was just in the right place and, and needed to be there. But also too, it felt really, uh, it felt like Chris never left. You know, like he was really, I feel like really. man there. And he's also, he's also, he was also like a crazy practical jokester. Like he would always like pull practical jokes on people. And he, he, he grew up a minister's son out like on Cape Cod. And his brother told me this story, like at his, at his funeral, that he, he and Chris would work this gas station during the summer. And this gas station was like right at the like right at the beginning of the Cape. Okay. People would drive in and ask them for directions how to get to Cape Cod. Okay. And Chris would give them really like enthusiastic <clears throat> detailed directions. Like every once in a while when like the shit is really hitting the fan at the Creative Vision Factory, I always like think, you know, Chris is somewhere there, you know. And, yeah. And uh, to just kind of trust this, we're just trying to do good stuff and cool stuff, and like let's right. just, the just keep trusting me. Yeah. And so we've, uh, you know, the the program itself, like I said, we're in our ten year anniversary, and when we first started off, I mean, it was just a real trip, you know, just you know, opening up our doors and having people come in, and and thanks to that kind of like you know time period with Alan and at the Rick Van Story Resource Center, we already knew from his population that there's a lot of artists within that group. And just being in town organizing mm-hmm. shows throughout through New Wilmington Art Association, I had already shown one of the artists, Nakoma Frederick. Okay. And when I met first met, met Nakoma, Nakoma would carry like all of his work on his person in in like a backpack, and. Um, when I when I was uh, shadowing at Rick Van Story Research Center like that first week, Nakoma came in with this big bag and yep. a giant box of copy paper. Yeah, he got in a fight with the guy who was working the front desk because he wanted to use the copy machine, and the guy was like, "Look, like you can't like you can't make all those copies. Like it costs a lot of money." And Nakoma was like, "What? I brought my own paper." And right, right. So I thought thought to myself, I was like, you know what? I'm going to use this as an opportunity to kind of like lean in here and see what I can learn about this guy. Right. So I I, I sat down with Nicole and I was like, hey, you know, can you show me what what you want to make copies of? And so he pulls out 
these like black folders. There's probably like 20 of them stacked together in this backpack, opens it up. And I'm thinking, I, I, I look at the first one and it's a handwritten newspaper article. And um, I'm thinking, okay, it wants to make like copies of a flyer. Right. I look through this folder and it's like, there's like 99 individual articles all written, handwritten by him to like look like a newspaper. Wow. Title is called Capital Freedom Recovery News. And the titles of some of these articles were like, you know, the lower the rent, the more enemies you have. The commonality between a psychiatrist, a priest, and a whore. Uh, all all this stuff. Wow. <laughs> and I'm read I'm reading all these articles. And you don't I'm, know what you just opened up, right? <laughs> yeah. I just, I said to him, I was like, look, like, what did you want to make copies of? Yeah. And he said, well, I wanted to make a backup copy. This is all in pen. And I wanted to have a backup copy of this because it, they often will get like rained on. And it's just like my mind at that point in time just blew wide open because here, yeah. here I am, you know, coming from my kind of art training, I'm looking yeah. at these objects. Yeah. And these things, like if all was right in, in behavioral health in Wilmington, right. you want to have this 30-some-year-old guy walking the streets, writing these articles that damn the health system. And it was this portal into his lived experience that was Definitely. so raw and so pure that in that moment, I knew that all I needed to do with the, the eventual Creative Vision Factory was just to create a space for him to feel comfortable, to make work, and then just to shine a big light on it. Yeah. And like that's basically the story of the Creative Vision Factory. It's right. like, you know, meeting the coma and understanding the depth of his work. Right. And understanding, you know, the space and conditions that he would need, the community that he'd need. The, right. You know, the supports. And again, too, it's like that is the supports and community that you have in every single art room. Every single art room yes. I've ever been in from grade yes. school all the way up has been like that. You know, it is a place to be with friends. And right. When I was in grad school, too, I, um, you know, I was really interested in, in kind of organizing spaces, alternative spaces. But I was always thinking like galleries and shows and things of those, that nature. And, um, you know, there was this uh, great show that I went to uh, right during the time I was working on my thesis show. Uh, it was called High Times, Hard Times, abstract painting from like the late 60s to okay. mid 70s. And, yep. um it had a really great catalog and one of the essays in the catalog, uh, there was this um, essay by the painter David Reed in this catalog. And he was talking about the Lower East Side of New York during this time period. And there's this uh, little segment of this interview where he was talking to the jazz musician, David Amram. And he said, um, he was like, you know, the reason why the Lower East Side had such a fusion of like mixture and forms and all this, all this cool stuff is that, it was the only place in Manhattan where artists, uh, where you could still live affordably. Mm -hmm. And, um, and if you were an artist, he's like, you had to, you had to hang out with your adolescent neighbors. And if you didn't practice hangoutology with your adolescent neighbors, it would make you like a victim of like petty crime, theft. And if you didn't want to have your shit stolen, that you should like hang out with your adolescent neighbors and like make art with them. Wow. And that idea of hangoutology always kind of like stuck to me of like, you know what? I love that. It's like so important just to like, just be in proximity, just to hang out, get to know people. I love that. It wasn't until like I started to like really move into this work. You know, when I first came into 
you know, accepting the contract, my qualifier as peer was that, you know, I didn't drink and, and use heroin anymore. Well, another kind of like secret of my recovery during that time period is like, I never talked to a therapist ever. And here, like I, I used to joke around early on when I took this contract that maybe this contract would be my mental health hmm. intervention. And it's just like, I, I think that is so hilarious because like all these years later, it totally was. Yes. You know, uh, you know, about, it was about four years ago when I started to recognize that I was having a really hard time, like being in my office alone or having mm -hmm. my back to the, to the crowd. Like the, the space can be so frenetic at times. Right. And, you know, leading into, you know, the COVID era, you know, it took, it took the COVID era and the state mandated shutdown for us to even have a pause to ask ourselves like, holy shit, maybe, maybe 80, like having 80 people move through our space in a day is not a good thing. Huh. You know, like, you know, when you, <laughs> when you come up with that tide over the years, right. Well, you lose sight of like when you became overwhelmed. Right. And our program is also situated in a, a right in center city. And what we've seen over the, the you know, the past like five years is a, is a ton of gentrification, of, right? You know, like the transitions and yeah, and it's changed and, so much down there, right? Yeah, we we literally we have a mayor who is the guy who like built our riverfront, right? And now he's kind of bringing that development model to the rest of this, well, not to the rest of the city, only to the downtown business district, right? We saw the closure of you know Rick Van Story Resource Center ended up getting closed. Uh-huh. We saw the the closure of 40 beds at the Central YMCA and all these right. things wow. making it harder and harder for our folks and and yes. their social infrastructure systematically shut down. And so as that's happening, our population, our numbers are increasing. Mm -hmm. Like early on when we were getting, you know, training, you know, when I was privy to, you know, all the early training of the beginning of the settlement agreement. You know, you talk and you hear about transferable trauma and you'd like, you know, intellectually, you'd be able to understand it. Yeah. But like yeah. all the years later of so, so much pain and so much dysfunction playing out in front of us and just, you know, following just the, the, like the really, it's almost like a, you know, just the complete, like overwhelming experience of poverty in Wilmington. Right. I started to see the behavioral health side of things a lot differently. It seemed to me like, you know what? These are behaviors that are so predictable, right? This is what happens when you have nothing and you're outside and you're constantly under threat. You know, yeah. so you might like somebody might call this severe and persistent mental illness. You know, I, I think it's like, this is severe and persistent poverty. Yes. And uh, you know what? Like, the other thing that I started to observe is the only time I ever saw any like really good outcomes with a lot of our regular folks was like always like after they got like windfalls of money or they were housed for like a month. Mm -hmm. yeah, it became really clear to me. It's like, oh, man, we got to figure out a way to like house everybody and give them money. That's yeah. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Mm -hmm. The hierarchy of needs. You have to have your basic needs you know, Matt, before you can do anything else. Mm -hmm. Right. And otherwise you're, you're just falling apart. You know, it's not that you're mentally ill. I mean, some people there definitely is illness, right. But 
for the, for the most part, if your needs aren't met, you, you are just not able to function. No. Right. And all we do on, on the regular in our world or country or whatever it is, is just take away people's basic needs, like for whatever reason. And the big part for me that I got to witness is, is we take away their autonomy. Yeah, exactly. We have a system that like measures your ability to comply. And it's like, exactly. And what I love about like the art room and the environment that we've created in a creative vision factory. And also what I love about the peer movement, we're not about complying. <laughs> right. Complete opposite of that. Right. That, that agency has like probably zilp, zip, zero to do with falling in line. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about taking that step forward of like, you know, saying, no, this, this is what I need. And this is what I need yes. together with my friends. Yes. And, uh, and with the support of my friends, you know, you know, it, it makes that, that load a lot less heavy from day to day. And what we've seen kind of like, like, as I, I feel like, you know, my whole viewpoint on mental illness and substance abuse has really been radicalized thanks to this experience. But then too, it also made me realize that I could only go so far with a kind of like, you know, really kind of like rigid Catholic old school AA that I learned from my mom. I feel like that, that kept me dry and functional for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And my own kind of like, you know, um, just my own motivations and my own work ethic and all this other stuff I really had to like work through to really come to this place that I, that I am today of really, you know, understanding that if you're, if you're doing this type of work and you're not talking to somebody who only has your interest in mind, at least every other week, you're not going to last long. Like it's right. going to eat you alive. Right. And, uh, right. and then you need seeing, community, right? Seeing the definitely coming out of where we came out of too, you know, there's always also too this kind of like lingering question of like, are we doing enough? Did we, are we doing the job? Um, but then having seen, seeing how we've responded during COVID and the work that we did to get people into emergency shelters and to really be a piece of really highly functional social infrastructure for our population of people. Right. Just really, uh, I've never believed, I've never had more belief in our model than I do coming out of this. And, uh, you know, it's really, uh, the social infrastructure that the Creative Vision Factory supplies, I mean, you can't name a town or a city in this country that wouldn't need it. Right. Oh, no, definitely. So, I mean, it's so much more than just like a place for for people to come in and make art and be creative. It is their lifeline, really. Mm-hmm. Right. And and you're supplying them with so many, so many things that I think, you know, we talked about at the beginning of our conversation of you and I in the art room, right, as students, kids, teens, and our art teachers, like seeing potential in us and helping us along and giving us identity uh, or, or not giving us identity, but helping us discover our identity and name it, um, autonomy. Um, and, you know, you said, you know, for uh, y- you kept mentioning a few minutes ago that like you were just in the right place at the right time, um, which probably that is the case. Um, but it sounds to me like hearing your story 
um, the parts that you've told me, it's like you like this. It was just set up for you to be doing what you're doing. Um, like predestined. It sounds like you like the right person with the right skills. And, you know, it sounds like the city of Wilmington is just so, so lucky to have you there. Um, <laughs> I know. I'll send this. I'll send this down to. I'll send this. To joking. We we just did this like really cool coffee for a cause campaign with uh, the Brandywine Coffee Roasters that supplies all of our local brouhaha's. Uh huh. It's a shame that we're still coming coming out of COVID because brouhaha is definitely like all throughout our central business district. But it's like a lot of that type would be so happy to like just move us under a bridge somewhere. Right. And, uh, it was just so powerful to have Brandywine Coffee Roasters recognize us, recognize our model, yes. recognize our history. And then, too, I was joking with people this past week, our last week of the of the fundraiser, to, to make sure that you send your bag of coffee to Mayor Przicki and let him know what you think of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then, too, it's like, uh, you know, we're, we're doing this project right now with the Winter Tour Museum. Mm -hmm. And it's funny to me, like, how the PTSD kind of hits me these days. Like, we're we're doing a collaboration with like the largest endowed cultural institution in Delaware. All right. Like my, one of my best friends is literally our downtown, like this Senate district three state Senator. Okay. And I can still feel completely unsafe. Like still feel like we're good. Like the, the rug could be pulled out from us at any moment. At any moment. And then this kind of like hyper vigilance of partnerships and work, I was joking, a lot of uh, friends of mine in in the in housing advocacy will say, "Man, like the strategy, Michael, is so good, so on point." And I'll be like, "Yeah, thanks. It's a trauma response. It's a trauma for sure, <laughs> for sure." I went, and we have a few minutes. We have a few minutes left, and I want to just hear a little bit about like how you see creativity, making art, making things, what, however it is, whatever they, whatever it is that you make, can affect positively your life and your ability to thrive in the world, right? Yeah. You're working with people all the time that are coming in with all different kinds of kinds of needs, right? Um, you know, we put the label of all of these different things on them, but at the end of the day, they're just human beings with needs and um, uh, like we were just talking about. And they come in there and they have the ability to do and receive all the things that you were just talking about. But um, they also have the ability to like create and explore. And um, what do you see, how do you see them changing um, through the mechanism of, of being a maker? Yeah. I, um, I think then too, it, it, this is born out of a lot of reflection. Like when I was in that Washington Lee high school art room, you know, kind of, realizing hey I, I was one of those kids that was in the art room four periods a day too mm -hmm. what was going on you know and yeah you know, looking back it's like what was going on is like I, I needed I needed that and the way I worked then too I've always worked very like um, kind of process based very kind of labor intuitive stuff and it was yeah. all kind of like always working that way I don't have to I never draw I can just jump right in I can always yeah start and stop whenever and yep i um the other thing that i was really into when i was younger as well is uh, baseball and hockey and um in athletics and in art 
you know, now, now I can look back and see, oh, and this was such an effective and powerful treatment for my anxiety. Hmm. It just helped me ground me, helps keep me centered. And, and what we see all the time and we talk about all the time in the studio too, is, you know, when, when you're working, when you're in the act of doing or creating, it's really hard to be dwelling on that, like really awful thing that just happened to you. Right. And it's also really hard to be like gripped with worry of the next awful thing that's going to happen. And so many times when we have people coming into the factory who are, who, who are coming in, they're in crisis and they're in this, they're completely gripped by fear, mm-hmm. completely gripped by like some horrible thing that's happened. Right. Anticipating the next horrible thing. Yep. That and they're very rarely ever just here. Yeah. And it's like, one of the first times I had a crew with me working on a project at, we were back at Sarah Powell Academy making a memorial mosaic wall for one of their beloved guidance counselors who passed away. Okay. And I'm out there with a group, group of group of people. I think like, I think half the crew was living at Sunday breakfast mission. You know, it's like, you know, uh, right. Kind of a, a, a pretty rough crowd to be taking into a alternative school. And when we were, when we were grouting and buffing, the principal kind of came out and she was just like, do you hear that? And then we like got up from our work and we're like, what? It was like nothing. We hear nothing. Like this whole group was like just so enmeshed in the work of kind of buffing this wall. Yeah. They were 100% just in it present. in That's the, the mindfulness, the, the present moment. Um, that is the, I feel like the magic of the, of the doing and of the making mm-hmm. and, um, and then being able to do that collectively with other people and then be able to like talk to them about stuff that you're right. interested in, weird stuff, stuff that you don't talk to anybody else about. Right. Man, it's like, you can like, you can like do anything. You can like change the world. And, yeah. uh, and so, I mean, that's the culmination of what happens there. The collective experience too, of just everybody that's there. It's like this is where the kind of like peer support social infrastructure is just so critical is that you can't like anybody in the factory at any time, just the collective knowledge that they have of supporting infrastructures and how to survive in the city. It's just such a huge resource. Right. And so anybody who comes into that space, I mean, we have the ability to connect them with somebody that can help them you know, navigate their way down to the mission or to get from right. point A to point B or to figure out how to, how to do this or how to do that. Right. A big part of our work has really been advocacy and in helping people navigate their current services, but also understand what to demand from those services. Mm-hmm. And so it's mm-hmm. like, it's weird. Creative Vision Factory, I'm, I'm like, you can't be in Delaware and not be in the politics. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's all over, but you know, my wife, her, her grandfather was a longtime state rep in Pennsylvania. Okay. And she and all and her brother had an experience of working in his office doing constituent services. And it's like the Creative Vision Factory is like simultaneously this hangoutology place, but it's also probably like the premier place for constituent services if you're experiencing homelessness. And uh, wow. You know, Senator Kuhn's office and his staff has just been so helpful with our folks this whole year, you know, helping track down like missing stimulus payments and trying right. to figure out what's going on with people. And, and those types of things are just like making, making government work for you, making, you know, like 
giving you a role to civically engage in your community and be a part of it. That's what it, that's how it works. And that's also like how a democracy should work. And that's how like this whole thing should work. And it's like, we spent this whole uh, past pandemic year working with the temple collaborative of community participation that the state of Delaware contracted temple to work with all of our peer centers. And I spent a big part of the year pissed off about that. Like, okay, we're in a pandemic, we're in the front lines of a housing crisis. And yeah, you're going to like, of course, you're going to like, give the peer centers this added thing to do. We're all right. under resourced, we're all undervalued. And now you're going to give us another job. So. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense in an environment we're all under lockdown. But <laughs> that's yeah. it, you know, like, the power of participating in your community, like anyone else and getting to meet all the researchers at Temple. I mean, the research is tight and spot on. It's great. You know, mm-hmm. I can question the state's timing about it all day long. Right. Coming out of this, that is the the new Wilmington, the new America that we want to try to strive for and create, mm-hmm. you know, one where you can participate. And, and for us and for our members, like recovery, you know, to us looks like just like being a participant. Yeah, wow. Aging, getting out there and doing something. You know, it's like I know the state and temple, they like to measure, like, you know, getting people involved in church, getting people involved in, like, uh, you know, in Delaware, we have enough people where we're going to get them involved in housing advocacy. We're going to get them involved in voter registration drives. We're going to get them involved in campaigns. Right. It's like how collectively we can actually, like, push us forward and make a new infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. so that's the thing. I think that, you know, the Creative Vision Factory is going to be, uh, you know, that kind of that kind of site where, you know, folks can find community, they can find a place to be. And but, you know, just like every high school art room that I've ever been in there, there's sites of becoming. This is like where you become. Yes. And it's like you're, you're not only belonging here, you're, you're figuring out like who you are, who you are. Into. That's beautiful. So. How can people, is there, are there ways for people to support the work of the creative vision factory? Um, or do you get all of your, all the stuff you need from the state or, um, can people actually somehow be involved with, with, you know, walking alongside the folks that you serve and, and, and work with? We're getting closer to that time period. You know, we, we still are observing pretty strict COVID restrictions. We still have a large percentage of our population is unvaccinated, yeah. even though 70% of Delaware adults 18 and older are at least have one shot in their arm. Well, right. we have always been working with that other 30%. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, and then too, I could, I could do a whole new whole podcast series on how, you know, how that vaccine drive was completely ass backwards and (laughs) wrong people Uh, again, you know, it's a, again, we want to approach government and community like, like crafts people. Yeah. Let's get this. Let's try new things. Let's experiment, explore, try. Yeah. You know, that's the thing about kind of like, you know, democracy and government in this country too. It's like, I feel like we need to tap back into this. This is an idea. This is Mm -hmm. an experiment. Yes. It's like a project. <laughs> right. We have to bring people into this project yeah. so they count as citizens and their concerns mm-hmm. are centered. And yeah. if you don't know that, you know, there's people living under the bridge and there's people living in a bunch of abandoned apartments, you know, you're just not going to know. And right. Like, 
right. the solutions to this have to be built up out of being in proximity with this really lived this lived experience that's happening right in our city. Yeah. It's like right in this North American <clears throat> city. And what makes it so weird is our scale is so small. I can, I can throw a baseball from our building into like third world living conditions and it's right there. And it's all built off of these legacies of discrimination, housing discrimination, and zoning. Yep. And it's a fascinating city, a story about like city planning. And uh, I feel like you know, it's almost like we get, we're like living in a real live movie. Yes. It's like I don't have to study like gentrification. And, no, you're uh, you're right there. You're in it. Yeah, we're making the history. And so I always had a problem with. You know, how can I be working over here for Shipley Lofts and trying to figure out like how that I'm advocating for artist live workspace or artist preference? You know, like artist preference in housing is inherently a discriminatory tool that yeah. now allows you to discriminate for the educated poor. And this is where I see Chris White in the designs. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. that was something I really wrestled with. And the answer all these years later rests in the creative vision factory. You just make more artists. You just make everybody an artist. Yeah. And, uh, and so we actually, uh, next week, when we come back from the 4th of July, I have some friends of mine from the home <laughs> campaign that are going to be helping our members on Tuesday and Wednesday complete their application for a new artist preference uh, development project in downtown called Quaker Arts. Okay. Quaker Arts is being uh, you know, 53 units of affordable uh, housing over three buildings that used to be owned by one of our largest behavioral health service providers. And the original impulse for this project was to get those clients who are artists like living in new construction properties. But that leadership is now long gone. Right. And, you know, if, if we don't assist in getting our folks into this building, they will not get into this building. And so we're going to do a real full court press this summer, trying to assist everybody in the completion of their housing applications try to get them in the front line. And that's awesome. We've been able to do like, we've had our, like Nicoma Frederick, he won a division of the arts fellowship this year. It's his second fellowship. It comes with a $6,000 award show at the big museum. And these things. Uh, That first guy that you met, like with his wanting to photocopy is now. Yeah. Doing all this. Yeah. 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 yeah, he's he's now shown it with Fleischer Roman Gallery like three times. Alex Baker from Fleischer Roman curated him in a show in Melbourne, Australia. And it's like, <laughs> but what's yeah. funny about this though too is like that kind of success in the arts, you can still have all that success and still have you know economic precarity yep. square at you in the face. But what's yep. been so critical with our 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 program and our population too is just like the social capital of like being recognized as an artist. The social capital of now, like for a lot of our artists too, of like they maybe never walked into the museum until they were shown there. Is when they felt safe enough that they could be. They could go in there. Yeah, and so their engagement in the arts has literally made the map of their city bigger. And now they know more people who recognize them as, oh, you're that, you're that artist, you're this person, you're that. So, right. That's just a, like when, just like partially, like when you were in high school and your teacher said he's an artist, mm-hmm. right? It mm-hmm. gave it solidified that and gave you the ability to do more things with your life, right? Totally. Yeah. So we have to wrap up tonight. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I really appreciate it. You gave us so much to think about, and um, I really, really do value your your time. So thank you. 
Um, everybody, this has been Michael Kambach and me. Um, and for those of you who are new to the Bold Creatives Collective, um, make sure you go to boldcreativescollective.com. You can put your email address in. You'll get a free download of Four Steps to Grow Your Creative Life. It takes you through goals, realities, options, and ways forward in terms of pushing into your uh, creativity um, and cultivating a life that is uh, just that creative and it's uh those are four pillars that i use myself uh this little download gets you started there but hang out with us in the collective invite your friends um and i have some uh, more stuff coming uh down the the pipeline but michael thank you so much for hanging out thank you